Welcome to Season 2 of American Political History, The Second Wave, The New Netherlands Company. The Dutch New Netherlands colony had very different political interests than the other English colonies in North America. The Netherlands was a small, recently pseudo-independent nation from Spain. The Netherlands had fought wars against Spanish rule and won their independence physically, yet Spain still hadn't recognized their political independence. Yet, the New Netherlands had become a booming economic powerhouse based around shipping, piracy, and textile factories. They would form what would become the future model of European colonizing companies. These companies were shaped by mercantilistic, nationalistic, and monopolistic forces. I know, that's a lot of listic. Let me unpack these so they make sense. Mercantilism is the idea that the world's trade is a zero-sum game. That there is a hundred trades happening in the world and you want your country to take as much of a share of that trade as possible. In our free market world, this sounds antiquated. And it is today. In a world where we study economic forces within the entire world economy. But in the 17th century, economics wasn't even a field for study. Nationalism, which is a broader force in politics. But for this conversation, we're concerned with a country's military being used as a nationalistic trade force. A country could outcompete you in the market for that trade, or it could use its military to force you out of competition in that market. And in the 17th and 18th century, control of the seas would mean control of the world's trade. This would drive the colonialization for resources for the next two and a half centuries. Monopolies, which we tend to think of as a company so large that it can take over an industry, it was quite the opposite in the 17th century. Monopolies were given out by rulers as patronage for achieving the crown's goals. Monopolies were something more like this, getting a charter for establishing Jamestown, you, the owner of the charter, would receive a monopoly for shipping tobacco from Jamestown. Or, if you built a fleet of ships to control shipping and trade from the Caribbean, you might get monopolies or exceptions from taxation on your tonnage and poundage for the loot you confiscated from the Spanish. Today, our government simply pays money for contracts for what they want. But in this era, even the crown was not that wealthy as a modern government today. They didn't have the wealth to fund these expeditions or fleets in the New World. They used patronage as their political currency to get forces within their own country to invest in these goals. And the really new part of this was the scale of these Dutch companies. Sir Walter Raleigh got a charter for starting a new settlement in North America. The Dutch would form two behemoth companies. One would have the rights to everything east of the Cape of Good Hope, which is today South Africa, and the other handled all of the Western Africa and the Americas. In the vernacular of the time, that was the East Indies, Asia, and the West Indies, the Americas. The United East India Company would, for a period of the 17th century, dominate European trade with Asia, becoming fabulously wealthy. But Asia's a little out of focus for our history in this podcast. The West India Company was founded at the turn of the 17th century, and by 1621, they had a fleet of 80 vessels in the Atlantic Ocean, a sizable fleet compared with small countries in Europe. And the West India Company would establish or conquer other European outposts in Africa, Brazil, and the Caribbean. And 
This company would give returns for its investors of 30 to 200% a year for decades. Investment money poured in on scales dwarfing anything the initial English colonies had. The investment houses in Amsterdam, which were stock exchanges minus the immediateness of the technology we have today in our exchanges, allowed for the Dutch capital to coordinate and pour into these mammoth companies like never before. These two companies would quickly have their own personal armies to enforce their monopoly rights. They would conquer other European trade posts and secure Dutch trade far more efficiently and effectively than any governmental edict would have done from Amsterdam. The Dutch society also had an additional attribute in their favor, and that is today an attribute ingrained in what we consider Americanness. The Dutch culture promoted profit-seeking. In most European courts of the time, you did your great deeds for the crown's glory and reputation. And of course, you took a little cut on the side for yourself. But in Dutch culture, it was okay to be in business to make money. The West India Company would make its fortune in two ways. It was able, through their company monopolies, to set prices on silver, sugar, dyes, Russian caviar, African slaves, and shipmaking. For a moment, Dutch shipwrights made half of the ocean-going ships produced in Europe. The second, less obvious way these companies made their terrific fortunes was in taking advantage of exchange rates of goods and their prices between two different cultures and locations. A ship could transport a metal-worked knife that was a common and cheap product in Europe and sell it for furs in the New World, and those furs were highly prized and expensive commodities in Europe. And this could be done with anything that had differing worth in different geographic areas. I know this concept sounds odd to us, in a world with Amazon, where anyone can buy items from the same online marketplace from anywhere in the world. But with the two different groups of humanity colliding that had been out of contact with each other for at least 15,000 years, there was enormous disparities between the values of commodities, which meant enormous profits to be made for those who could transport those commodities to the different areas. But as good as the Dutch were at making profit with the West India Company, their split political interests between profit and colonial empire made them poor at establishing permanent colonies. The New Netherlands Company would struggle with the direction and vision of their colonial expeditions. The Dutch Protestants viewed acquiring New World colonies as the only way to truly compete with Spain and therefore gain freedom from the Spanish's hegemony, true independence. While the Dutch merchants were seeking profits, thinking these colonies should be made as small settlements that are nothing more than a waypoint to control local trade, the Dutch really didn't need to be in the game of empire building or spreading Dutch culture or having colonial plantations for the production of trade commodities. The merchants viewed the New Netherlands for local fur trade purposes. They thought that the Dutch's future was in controlling shipping not in expensive colonies. Besides, as Jamestown had shown, settlements requiring constant reinvestment for marginal, if any, profits was something they didn't need to do. And then, of course, the settlers would inevitably squabble with the natives about land and livestock, jeopardizing the flow of furs in conflict. And that was the only profit that was made there. Why would they get into permanent settlements? Instead, the merchants said, 
we should just have skeleton crews of guards and merchants that only need limited accommodations, you know, a barracks, a mess hall, and these people didn't even need to be Dutch or costly skilled labor. These two political forces would push New Netherlands into a confused mix of private aspirations of colonists and the commerce of merchants and of employees or settlers. And ultimately, this would make it a place where someone came to make a quick buck, but no one came to build a community that was to last. The New Netherlands Company was founded in 1615, and the New Netherlands is the area following the Hudson River Basin and the Delaware River Basin into the interior, and the coastal larger region around the greater New York City area. After the successes of the English in Jamestown and Plymouth to establish permanent settlements, the Dutch needed their own settlements to claim their lands and compete with the English. And in the European mind, permanent settlements was the only way a country could claim lands. In 1620, the New Netherlands Company pressed the government in Amsterdam to give them permission to settle the Hudson River Valley, because the Dutch presence was nothing more than a few ships anchored in the Hudson River that traded all winter with natives before returning home. The Netherlands was a small nation with a limited population. They didn't have the excess that the English had of dissidents to ship off to the New World. The Dutch also enjoyed the highest standard of living in Europe, so their native-born people were probably not going to go on these risky settlements. But the Dutch did have experience importing and using immigrant labor for their domestic textile factories, and this would become an asset in the New Netherlands. To populate this colony, the Dutch would recruit 30 families that had been rejected the year before by the Virginia Company, and they would also reinforce these 30 families with an eclectic assembly of impoverished European outcasts, Finns, Swedes, Walloons, Flemings, Burgoynes, Holsteiners, Danes, Germans, and French Huguenots. The goal of this initial group was to lay land claim to many important riverways for the fur trade. A small garrison was set up at the mouth of the Hudson River, four families were sent to the mouth of the Delaware River, Two families were sent to settle near where Philadelphia is today. Two more families were sent to the mouth of the Connecticut River. And the remaining families were sent to the interior to build Fort Orange, where Albany is today. These settlements were nothing more than crude temporary encampments for trading furs with the natives and rudimentary subsistence farming. But it was reported back to Amsterdam in the company advertisement that we are now familiar with. That the colonists lacked for nothing and did not wish to return home even to Holland. And the company did offer the best indentureships, free passage, and free land with only six years of service to the company instead of the usual seven. But the Dutch did have a major advantage of their reputation for toleration of religion within your home and general acceptance of immigrants. More settlers arrived in the spring of 1625, settlers with livestock and all sorts of farming supplies. Cannons even got installed at Fort Amsterdam, which now guarded the Hudson River's entrance, to ensure defense against any Spanish hostilities. Spain had made many public claims about never allowing anyone to take possession of their lands dictated to them by the Pope. But the English and the Dutch's continual pirating of the valuable colonies in the Caribbean and the treasure boats coming from there, meant that the Spanish never really had time or even interest in sailing north to raid unprofitable and poor settlements in North America. These lands of the New Netherlands was populated by the Lenape Nation, who spoke a Munsee dialect. 
The Lenape was a group of a dozen or so nations that lived in modern New Jersey, eastern Pennsylvania, and the area in and around New York City. These nations moved seasonally two or three times per year. They could be found on the coast in the spring and in the interior in the fall, and they wintered near wherever there was good food sources for small game. Their transient society encouraged the knowledge of how to recreate tools and makeshift homes. There was no cultural elements of permanent individual ownership of things. And they valued, to the Dutch's frustration, knowledge of quick making of tools rather than durable tools themselves. The Lenape, unlike the Wampanoag and the Powhatan, had no interest in trading for iron pots and tools since they were too heavy to carry in their seasonal migrations. There was also cultural difficulties, and the Dutch used these difficulties to look down upon the Lenape. First, Lenape lineage was tracked through matrilineal inheritance. If your mother was a turtle nation, then you would be a turtle nation. This was different than Europe. Next was the division of labor. Growing food, preserving food, building dwellings, and hauling the communal goods during migration was all work assigned to females. Men focused on hunting and fishing. Europeans looked at the native men resting in camps while the women worked and surmised general laziness on their part. This was not out of some sympathy for the balance of work with the women, but an objection to the men not showing the proper European characteristics of men. The Dutch believed that farming and preserving food was most definitely a male occupation and respected necessary occupation for both genders. They also saw hunting and fishing as sport and recreation, leading to the obvious conclusion, to them, that the males of the Lenape were simply filled with laziness instead of leading their household as God called them to be doing. And because of all of these traits, the Dutch believed that the Lenape society was savage and incompatible with modern European society. In their estimation, the Lenape culture was most similar to the Irish culture, which had seasonal migrations with their herds of cattle, and the savagery of the Lenape, just like the Irish, made them incompatible with Protestant society. And the final determination of the Dutch was that the abundance of the New World in comparison to most European nations, and the thought of how could a society fail to progress with such natural splendor about them, unless and except for a generalized cultural laziness. Regardless of what the Dutch thought of the Lenape, the New Netherlands would be tossed in the middle of native geopolitics. Since 1624, the Mohicans and the Mohawks had been at war over control of the fur trade to Europeans. Company leaders had thought about aligning themselves with the Mohicans. But after the Mohawks attacked and killed a few people at Fort Orange, including roasting them alive with an earshot of the fort, the company decided it was better off siding with the Mohawks. They would not be able to defend their fort in the interior against them, so you may as well join them as your trade partner. In 1625, a relief fleet arrived with supplies and more immigrants from the melting pot of European refugees. But this time, they didn't get the families or the desperate indentured labor. They got what would be described today as the tough guys. Many of the immigrants were running from another life of criminality or looking to get rich, and they didn't have any loyalty to the Dutch or the Dutch's permanent settlement interests. And to boot, the governor at the time of the New Netherlands could himself be called a tough guy. Verhulst would bully any opposition to him, and he later was found out to be embezzling both trade goods and furs for himself. 
1626, the company replaced Verholst with Peter Manuet. At the same time, the merchants would discover the value of wampum. Wampum is seashells carved into beads and strung into long scarf-like bands. The value would increase with the amount of rarer colors within that band. This was important because the Dutch fur traders had discovered that wampum would convert into more furs than trading European goods with the interior fur-producing nations like the Mohawks or the Mohicans. So the Dutch started trading European goods, specifically metal drills that could be used for making wampum, with local coastal wampum-producing nations like the Lenape. Then they exchanged that wampum for more furs to the interior nations. This increased their fur profits substantially. The pilgrims heard from traders about this discovery of a native currency of wampum and started using wampum for their trade with natives in the interior. Both English settlements and the Dutch would make wampum legal tender in their territory for decades. And in the winter of 1626, with the war between the Mohawks and the Mohicans raging around them, Governor Minuet consolidated the settlement on Manhattan Island, bringing back most colonists from Delaware, Connecticut, and Fort Orange. Manhattan was an attractive location for the Dutch because it had enough space and land for both the company's purposes and settlers to start plantations with roaming animals who would naturally be hemmed in by the island's geography. The other attraction was that most of the native inhabitants had also been driven away by the Mohawk-Mohican War. Only a few hundred Lenape remained on all of Manhattan Island. Governor Minuet purchased Manhattan from those Lenape for 60 guilders of trade goods. This new settlement on Manhattan would be called New Amsterdam, and had about 200 inhabitants at the time. And in desperation to actually be making profits, the New Netherlands Company would reform the whole colonial rule structure. They would change farming production from a monopoly dictated by the company to an investment settlements where owners could grow whatever they wanted. They would also allow settlers to trade with anyone on the North Atlantic seaboard that they wished, instead of only being able to ship out through company ships, and the company even offered access to as many African slaves as the planters could afford, though not many of them could afford them at the time. The West India Company controlled the slave market in Africa, and they desperately needed to find markets to sell their slaves at. The New Netherlands Company would change from mercantile, monopolistic, nationalistic trade headquarters to an authority who oversaw and arbitrated disputes between residents, or in other words, they would try and transform themselves from mercantile trading post to Dutch colony. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating. And share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.